Okay, Hebrews chapter 6. Everybody ready? Gave you a few minutes, gave you some time, right? All right, this is where we started, and it's where we're going to end. We'll read a few other verses today. Hebrews 6 says, we have this hope. Everybody say, this hope. We have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Now, for some of you, you're already going, I don't understand what in the world that means. So let me give you a bit of a rehash of what we talked about over the last several weeks to hopefully set you up for what we're going to talk about over the next few minutes. We have, we talked about this last week. I'm so happy the Bible is not about one singular person in terms of how Jesus affects just you. That I love that the verse is not written, I have this hope, and I hope you figure out where your hope is. I love that it says, we have this hope for an anchor for our lives. That we hold this hope together as the church, as people. We do it together. We have this hope. And it is this hope, not that hope. It's not circumstantial hope. It's not hope based upon whether the winds are blowing or the waves are, are hitting you. It is based upon what you're anchored to. So we have this hope, not that hope. So I'm just going to I'm going to quickly run through this as an anchor for our lives. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. You don't know you have an anchor until you feel the tension. You don't know you're anchored well until you feel some pullback when even when things are trying to push you. Right? Now the challenge with that is it, it one it reminds you that you're anchored, but it also reveals what you're anchored to. Has anyone ever gone through a situation or a circumstance and realized you are anchored to the wrong thing? You ever gone through a tough moment in a relationship or a tough moment at work or a tough moment just in life and, and, and on the inside of you things are difficult and you realize that the things you had put your hope in just aren't going to hold you very well? Okay, so only I'm the only struggling Christian in the room, right? That, uh, that, that, that you, you, while it reminds you you're anchored, it also reveals what you're anchored to. And we have to realize that the tension is good for us because it reminds us. The tension is an opportunity for us to make sure that we're anchored to the right things. That we aren't building our hope just simply based upon whether things are calm, but what we are connected to. We, we, I think we are becoming a culture of escape artists. We are really good at escaping the things that are causing us tension. We are really good at avoiding or running from those things so we, because we believe that the ultimate goal of our life is to be comfortable. We have built an entire culture right now on the idea that you should be comfortable. I don't know about you, but when I get really comfortable, I actually get really ineffective. Like, have you ever sat in a really comfortable chair? If you, some of you are like, no, I'm still looking for it. Um, if you sit in a really comfortable chair and something happens and you need to react, it's like, it's like a, it's an ordeal trying to get up because one, you don't want to, and two, because you are comfortable and your body has just gotten used to it. And I'm not saying you can't ever be comfortable and you can't ever rest, but it's a different kind of rest. We tend to be people who are trying to avoid the situation rather than lean into it. And yet Paul says that tension is what gives us an opportunity for perseverance. Perseverance is what actually produces character, and character, here it is, produces hope. So if you want hope, 
You can't run from the tension. You actually have to embrace the tension and allow it to be the thing that shapes you and molds you and moves you into the places you need to be. So this hope we have as an anchor for our lives. Some of your translations would say, and most translations would actually say, the word soul, as an anchor for our soul. I think that's a good connection because lives and soul, life and soul, those, that's really a great way if you were to kind of come up with a synonym for soul because it's one that that word can be a bit difficult to define even if you look at uh, scholars and theologians, that word can be a bit of a challenging word to really hone in on what it means. And, and, and so most would just simply tell you that it is to say that your soul, all of who you are. So it, this is meant to be an anchor for all of you, not just part of you, but all of you, every part of your life. We, we have a really, we, we get into this place where we divide the sacred and the secular. We have a really challenging time connecting what happens on Sunday to what happens on Monday. That goes way back to Plato who told you that, that, hey, this is just a shadow. This is not really the good thing. This is actually a bad form of what we are. What, who we really are is up there. It's out there. It's somewhere in some other realm. That, 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 that this is separate somehow. That this, You should look at this body as evil because it's keeping you from who you really are. Jesus did not look at it that way. Jesus said that all of you. All of you are redeemed. Everything about you. And even while this body wastes away, you are being renewed in the spirit day by day. That your body may not be able to keep up, but it absolutely is not something to be condemned. You should bring your body into alignment with everything else. So your, your anchor is meant for all of your life. It's meant to be an anchor. It's meant to hold you close. It's meant to keep you healthy and strong. It's safe and secure, and it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. What does that mean? I'm giving you a real, I'm just trying to give you a real clear idea because I want, to, I just want to look back a little bit so that we can walk out of today really strong. What does it mean that it was going inside behind the curtain? That, that is a reference to what they would have called the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And, and it actually even moved into some of what the temple was in the New Testament. And it was this idea that um, there were the outer courts, there was the inner courts, Holy of Holies, so there were different levels, stages, places you could enter in. So the tabernacle was where the presence of God dwelled in the Old Testament. And, uh, and, and so what would happen is the, the only person, you could like every, every kind of doorway, every kind of entrance was uh, a new level of filtering. In other words, there was only certain people who could go in and by the time you got to the Holy of Holies, the only person who could enter in was the high priest. And that was where the high priest would carry uh, the sins and the, the issues of the people in before the Lord. And, and they would have, and don't, don't you love that that's not how we do it anymore? Don't you love that Jesus came as the high priest and paid all, all, all our sins, paid the price fully, completely, so you have access all the time? Uh, I don't know. I think that's cool. And, uh, and so um, that's what we're talking. What we're talking about is that our hope is anchored somewhere different. Our, our hope is anchored in the presence of God. It is anchored beyond the veil. It's anchored in a place that cannot be touched by other things. It cannot be sh uh, shifted or changed or, 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 or manipulated by other things. It is set apart. And so you and I have a hope that is set apart. It is not anchored in the wind and the waves. It is anchored deeper. It is anchored further and it is anchored stronger beyond what is hitting us in life. Because I found, I don't know about you, but I, I seem to think that, that for many of us, we drift further and further and further away from who we are when we've lost our anchor. I believe believers, those who follow Jesus, should be so secure. In fact, Paul says that I, I'm, my whole aim is to make sure that you're mature, fully developed in Christ Jesus. I want you to know fully exactly who you are in Christ Jesus. 
And, and when, we, when we aren't anchored to Jesus, every wave that pushes us and every wind that blows on us, we get further and further away from who God's called us to be. And we all have been in this place where we get somewhere after six months or a year or even just a couple weeks of whatever situation or circumstance or thing that we're dealing with, and somehow we have drifted further and further away, and we sit and we look and we go, wait, why am I in this place right now? Why am I here? And it's because we've allowed the circumstances of life rather than the conviction of our heart to guide us and shape us in that season. And so the anchor is meant to hold us to a confident expectation of the future. It's meant to be reserved. We talked about this a couple weeks. Have you ever made a reservation at a restaurant? Isn't it just, doesn't it, oh, it's just such a good feeling. It's such a good feeling when you open up the Open Table app and reserve a, rest, a table at a certain time at a specific place and know that when the day comes for you to take your wife out on a date because you're a good husband and you understand that that should happen. Okay. Um, and, and just let it sit there and let the Holy Spirit minister to your hearts. Uh, but when, when, when I've got a reservation, what happens is I can walk to that place and time with a confidence that my table will be ready. There are far too many of us living life without a reservation. We are living life hoping and wishing, and maybe if we just do this perfectly, and maybe if we get ready on time and get there at the right time, and everybody else is busy, and we are really nice to the hostess, and if we really, then maybe, just maybe, they'll put us at a table. And, quick, and how many of you know that's how we live our lives? So many of us are hurried, we're impatient, we're trying to do it all on our own, we're trying to make it happen by ourselves, we're trying to somehow do life without a reservation. And that's why this hope does not take us off the earth, it makes us better on the earth. This hope should make us walk through life with a patience and a calm and a peace and a strength and a joy that impacts the world around us. Amen? Okay. So why do I say all of that? Because sometimes... Sometimes this hope is hard to find. Now, again, I know some of y'all are looking at me again like I'm the only t struggling Christian in the room, right? But sometimes this hope, yeah, we know about that hope, the world hope, the, the culture hope, that, that hope, yeah, I get it. But this hope, the one that's based in Jesus, the one that's based in him, the one that is all about who Jesus is, sometimes, just sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, it's hard to know where this hope resides. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And sometimes we go through things in life, and we go through a long season in life. And some would call this the dark night of the soul. Sometimes we go through these places where it just feels like there's no light. There's nothing that's giving us any idea that there's hope for the future. And we're going through these seasons and situations and circumstances. And this hope, the one we read about in Hebrews 6, the one that is safe, and secure, the one that lives beyond any situation or circumstance in the presence of God. This hope, the one that Jesus is promising to us through him, this hope is just sometimes hard to locate. And we live in a world that, that's not, listen, we, sometimes we say the world and we separate it from church. Depression and anxiety is just as present and prevalent in the church as it is anywhere else. Maybe for some of us, we have anchored to the wrong things. And I, I, I wanted to talk a bit. It's, it's weird because in some ways, when you say the word depression, you, you immediately go into a, a deeper place. We're all of a sudden talking about things that are at a deeper level. And yet the things I'm going to talk to you today are, are so practical. They're so like, they're, they're not surface level. I think sometimes we think deep means difficult. You ever seen an anchor? 
It's not, like, you would think it would have, like, 700 things to, like, no, it's a chain and some shape, and then it hooks on. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward what it is. And so many of us think deep means difficult. Deep means that we do the simple things, like pulling weeds. I don't know if you know this. I, I, I hate lawn work. I do not like getting in the lawn, although by the end of it, I actually kind of enjoyed it because it was a break. But, but pulling weeds is the worst. Have you ever noticed weeds just grow? They just, you don't, you don't fertilize them. You don't water them. They just show up. And they keep showing up. One of the best things you can do in your life is to keep pulling weeds all the time. I mean, like, all the time. Weeds just always grow. In your life, in your heart, in your mind, things just grow. And you have to pull the weeds. And it's so interesting. It's not like you have to go get seven tools to pull weeds. You just reach down, you grab it by the root, and you pull. And so many of us think that all of this stuff is so deep that we got to get a shovel, and we got to get a, we got all, these, all this stuff. And what we really need to do is just go, that shouldn't be there. And there's some things that the Bible's actually given us. And in a world where one in six, one in six on antidepressants. Now, again, I'm not telling you these things are wrong. I'm not telling you. The, I think they are pointing us as a culture to something that is deeper. What surprises me in our culture is that we have taken morality off the table in so many instances. I was listening to a kids and family playlist on iTunes yesterday, and I had to keep skipping songs because my five-year-old was in the back seat. That doesn't seem to make any sense. We have taken this idea that nothing we say or do has any moral value or any spiritual value or affects us physically. And we've just kind of taken it off the table. And yet, one of the leading voices on leadership right now, her primary message, a lady named Brene Brown, her primary message is on shame and guilt. It is weird to me that a person is making the rounds, talking to huge corporations, has her own Netflix special. That's legit. I'm trying to get one of those. And she's got her own Netflix special talking about leadership and how to lead well and how to be a great person. And you know what she's dealing with? She's not dealing with the practicalities of how you should do a spreadsheet. She's talking about you need to deal with your shame and your guilt. Because no matter how much morality we take out of the room, we still have this deep sense of what life should be. That's the challenge of our hope, is that we can taste it, we can smell it, we can sense it on a Monday afternoon when we're in this place or that place, and we're pushing up against the idea that there is a heaven, but we don't always get to see it, we don't always get to live it. Sometimes we're on this earth, and we're meant to bring heaven to earth as the body of Christ, but we bump up against what we believe is beautiful and majestic and amazing, and then we get frustrated because 10 minutes later we run into things that aren't those things. And it's the tug and pull of life. It is, in many ways, the tension of life. And scriptures speak of this. Scriptures speak about creation is moaning and groaning to get to the place where God designed it to go. The, 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 the writers of the Bible are not absent of conflict. They, they aren't aloof, and they, they aren't somehow living in the clouds. They understand that there's this push towards what God has created this earth to look like and what he's created our lives to be, and they acknowledge it. And the reason you have to acknowledge it is so that you can actually deal with it. See, when, when, we, de- when we become escape artists, when we, we pull out our phone every time there's silence, when we, when we walk out the door every time there's conflict, what we actually are doing is ignoring the very thing 
that should remind us that we need to lean in. See, pain is interesting. We hate it, but it's necessary. Pain, pain points you to something. My son, uh, my son, when he, we were just talking about this on, uh, right before service this morning. He, my, both my sons, really, have bruises all up and down their shins, right? And my son will go, we, we, th- my sons tend to be, they tend to like riding bikes, and, uh, and they, they ride them on things that maybe they shouldn't at their age, but, um, you know, it's fun. And uh, I'm not the one, to, they're doing it, so. Uh, but he'll, hit it, he'll, he'll fall down, and all of a sudden his knee will be bleeding, and then, and then you'll ask the question, because we all do this, and you'll go, hey, are you okay, buddy? And you go, yeah, I'm good. And you know, he's taking this, like, a weird step, and you go, you all right? Yeah, I'm dad, I'm, dad, I'm fine. Like, what are you worried about? And so many of us are doing this in life, right? We're going, no, I'm good. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm fine. And blood's, like, dripping down our leg. We're not walking very well. We're just kind of making it. We're going, God, I'm fine. Lay off, right? Like, I'll be good. And there's only so long that that will work for you. At some point, you're going to have to deal with it. Otherwise, it's going to get infected. And then the little problem becomes a big problem because you didn't just go, oh, that shouldn't be there. That thought shouldn't hang out in my life. Oh, that feeling doesn't get to decide who I am. Oh, that, I need to pull that. Hey, God, you know what? Actually, I am bleeding. Can, you've got the bandage stuff. I've heard heavens are really good and soft. And when you pull them, they don't hurt. You know? uh, and maybe you could just put that on my knee and help me heal. Because pain, pain should be a reminder that something isn't right. That something actually isn't doing what it should be doing. Frustration is your greatest friend. If you want to lead well, don't run from your frustrations. Lean into them. There are far too many people reminding others about their frustrations and not dealing with them. Leaders look at frustration and create vision. Leaders see frustration and go, oh, that should be a, that should, that should be a problem I solve. Not just a problem I remind people about. Leaders go, oh, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to lean into that. I'm not going to let that rift continue. I'm not going to deal. I'm not going to let the hostility stay. I'm not. I'm going to get in and deal with the weeds of life. Some of the best leaders are just really good gardeners. They're just looking at it and going, "Oh yeah, that needs to be. Oh yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Okay, cool. Yep, yeah, let's pull that." And sometimes the weeds don't want to go. Sometimes the weeds just want to stay. And you have to you have to pull a little bit harder. And you got to get a little better grasp. Or maybe maybe you need one tool and you need to do that deal that you stick in and you pop it out. And that's that thing's beautiful. I do it just normal grass because it's fun. But like it's you you just that you just got to pull the weeds. You just got to deal with the stuff. I'm not anywhere near the rest of my message yet. And I think we're supposed to be ending soon. So depression, anxiety, big words. I'm not going to tell you that depression doesn't exist. I'm not going to tell you just buck up and figure it out. I'm not going to tell you just pray 100 hours a day and you'll be good because that's not even possible. I'm going to tell you that there are things that the world gives you and the things that that life and science has produced that are helpful. But I'm going to tell you also that most of the time those things simply numb the pain. They don't actually deal with the pain. They, they, they they, They are just simply ways to remove the feeling of it rather than deal with the cause of it. And, and, and when we are people who are removing ourselves from the situation and removing ourselves from the stuff, we don't ever actually get through what needs to happen. And, and I think it's a strange thing that our culture deals with anxiety and depression in the same way, even though they are very different things. 
Anxiety is usually a thought issue, and depression is usually an emotional one. Anxiety is thoughts that have run rampant, and now instead of thinking about what is, you begin to think about what if. Anybody hear that? Far too many of us are anxious not because of what is, but because of what if. Depression is where we have something that hurts us or causes us pain, and instead of, uh, instead of healing from it, we actually hold on to it. And it becomes embedded in our life, and it becomes this emotional pool on us wherever we go and whatever we're dealing with. And so we deal with things in so many, and we tend to call depression the word. And I don't want to make light of this. I'm not making light of this, I don't think. I think depression for many of us is something we deal with, whether it be in a season or have dealt with for a long time. But we talk, we talk about depression. We say this, this phrase, chemical imbalance. Uh, most, most, uh, most people, not, not just Christians, not just people who are trying to turn, most people will tell you that's a bad way to phrase it. We thought it was a good idea because we thought it took some of the stuff off of it or the weirdness around it off of it. But the truth is what we actually do is label it, categorize it, and simplify it into something that it isn't. And so we say chemical imbalance, not realizing there are far, many th- far more things that cause depression than just simply a, something that's chemically imbalanced in your life, in your body, in your mind. And so when we, when we don't deal with, label it correctly, we actually can't deal with it correctly. And the problem with sin is it's not always your sin that's the problem. Sometimes it's somebody else's. Sometimes someone can and could have done something to you in your life that has caused such a pain that it has, it has grown in your life and is causing you pain. So am I against antidepressants? No. But as John Mark Homer says in his book, My Name is Hope, which I would highly recommend for every one of you. I've got two or three people that have already told me they're reading it, and it's changing their life. My Name is Hope. It's all about anxiety and depression. And he, he's from Portland, so he know, you know he's got to talk to people who don't believe everything he believes, right? Um, and, and so I would highly recommend it. Short read, easy read, but very deep because not all deep things have to be difficult, right? And so, anyways, so... Uh, I forgot where I was going with that. He said some cool things. All right, so, oh, the right question. He says the right question isn't do I agree with these things. It is what's causing the pain in my soul. We prescribe things far too quickly because it allows us to move on to the next thing when maybe we shouldn't be moving on to the next thing just yet. Again, a reminder, pain reminds you to sit down when your ankle is broken. And to stay sitting until it is healed. Don't get mad at pain. Get healed. Sometimes get mad at pain and just keep walking on the pain. And we wonder why we're still in pain. Okay, he says there's two things in My Name is Hope. Two things, and I love this because I I would pull the same thing from Hebrews 12. It's one of my favorite verses. He says there's two things that usually get us to a place where we're in depression or anxiety. He says it this way. Usually the problem is one of two things. You ready? Sins and struggles. Sins and struggles. Two different things. Both can result in the same thing. Meaning there are things that we are deliberately doing outside the will of God for our lives. Both spoken here or spoken by the Holy Spirit, things that, are, that, that we know we should be doing that we're not doing. Sin. Falling short of the glory of God. Right? Okay, cool. Some of you like think that's a heavy word. It's just three letters. You're good. Sin and struggle. 
there are things that maybe it's personality, maybe there's certain ways of doing life, maybe there's a background and experience that we've grown up with, maybe there's a, a traumatic experience that's happened in our lives that we've still struggled with. There's struggles, just things that aren't sinful, they just aren't beneficial. Paul deals with that. See, we love to categorize everything as sin or not sin. The Bible loves gray. The Bible's okay with the gray area of life. It, it's, there are some things that aren't sinful or wrong, Paul says, but they sure as heck aren't beneficial to your life. They aren't going to produce in you the image of Christ. They aren't going to grow you, make you healthier, do better. Like, it ain't wrong. It's not sinful, but it's definitely not good for you. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody have a diet like that? It's not wrong. Like, it's not really unhealthy. It just ain't really healthy either. And Hebrews 12 says it like this, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, come on, because we have this hope together, not just I have this hope, let us lay aside every weight and sin, every weight that slows us down and every sin that trips us up. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, but you can't run it until you deal with the weight and the sin, the struggle and the sin. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame. Again, there's that word shame, because no matter how much we try to say we, we don't have to live up to a standard, we all feel the standard. And has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. By sins, I mean blatant, clear areas of disobedience to God and teaching the Bible. Struggles defined as patterns built into people's DNA. In a world that believes more, okay, I'm just reading my notes now. Okay, here you go. Tolkien, how many of you guys know who Tolkien is? How many of you have ever watched a really popular movie series that you really, really liked, Lord of the Rings? Did you know that was a book first? Like, What? It's amazing words together can make amazing things. Anyways, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote some amazing books, right? But J.R.R. Tolkien names evil in all of his stories. He understands it's real. And he gives us permission to challenge the bland and inadequate moral outlook of our age that insists we respect everything. Like his close friend C.S. Lewis, Tolkien was convinced that we had lost the moral vocabulary that enabled us to speak of evil and thus to fight it. That's, now that's deep. When we can't name it, when we can't say, oh, you know what, there is actually something trying to destroy my life. The life God intended, the enemy is, roaring, is, is prowling around like a roaring lion who wants to steal, kill, and destroy the abundant. So it is not just the idea that you want to push for it. It is the idea that someone's trying to pull it away from you. It is the struggle of our lives to understand that God wants life for you and the enemy does not want it. Satan does not want life for you. That there is actually a spiritual battle going on around us all the time. And because we don't recognize that on a regular basis, we don't deal with it in that arena either. So we worry and we get frustrated and we forget to pray. Why? Because we don't think it's a spiritual thing. We, we, get, we get offended or we get, and we don't forgive. Why? Because we don't think it's a spiritual thing. We, we get, it's amazing to me how we separate those things and we don't connect them. And even though, even though it's, it's so clear to me throughout my life, that all of it works together to create a healthy heart. Now, he does give us a solution. 
He does give us a solution out of Hebrews 12 and says it a few different ways in a few different places. Hebrews 12 says it this way, keeping our eyes on Jesus. What's the solution to this hope? Keeping our eyes on Jesus. I know, that's a little bit spiritual. In fact, I asked my son on the way here, hey, what are we going to church for? And he goes to learn about Jesus. And then he said something about going into space and stuff. But, um, but he, started, he started in the right place, okay? Started in the right place. Baby steps, okay? But keeping our eyes on Jesus. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. John 16, says it like this. Jesus talking here to his disciples. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Where? In me. You may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. I, I hate that part of the verse too. I get it. But you will have suffering in this world. And you have to acknowledge that verse or you will become a very disillusioned Christian. You will become a very bitter believer. Because you thought that no suffering would ever come your way. And yet we serve a God who suffered on a cross. But for the joy set before him, endured it. Because he knew it brought life to you. Suffering will come your way. But then he says this. Then he says this. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. I love that he attaches the disciples' victory to his. He does not say, hey, be courageous because you're going to figure it out. Be courageous. You're going to win. He says, be courageous. I've already won the victory. You're going to suffer. There's going to be difficult moments. It's not all going to go the way you expected it to go. But please understand that I have already won the victory because our hope is not solved in the temporary place of our life. Our hope is solved by the fact that eternity is reserved for us and that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and that heaven will in invade earth through the people of God and through our lives. And that is our hope. Our hope does not rest on whether it's sunny or rainy today. It does not rest upon whether or not we get the job or don't. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Amen. So let me give you three things. Three things that I want you to realize help us keep this hope attached to the right anchor. Three things that help us keep this hope attached to Jesus. Three things that help us stay connected to him. Number one, drink it in. Now, I said to say this is the first service. These are three statements, but this is still number one. I just work in threes. That's how I roll. Okay? All right. So, number one, drink it in, pray it through, then work it out. Drink it in, pray it through, then work it out. Here's what I mean. Get in the word because this thing's good for you. It is living and active, and your spirit is hungry and thirsty. I know this because you picked up the gossip magazine on the way down the grocery aisle. I know this because the last person who started to complain to you, you didn't stop them. You listened to them. I know this because you watch enough television or enough stuff to try to build. We are hungry people, and when we are hungry, we will eat. So when we don't put the right thing in our spirit, we will be eating on the wrong things. And guess what? We will end up with the wrong results. So when we eat on complaint, and complaint, man, complaint is obnoxious, isn't it? it complaint is, and I'll tell you why, how, how I know it's complaint. You ready? I'm going to give you a couple standards for complaint. Mary and I were talking about this. Complaint, number one, you talk to the person who can do nothing about it. Right? You talk to the person who can do nothing about what you're complaining about. Man, I don't like this, and I don't want to do it, and, and all you're doing is getting it off your chest. 
You, you also, it's complaining when you never turn it into potential. When all it is is reminding people there's a problem rather than reminding them there's potential, you're just complaining. Some of you are like, oh, shoot. Yeah, I did that yesterday. Yeah, we all do it. It's obnoxious, and yet we all do it. Right? We need to change the confession of our hearts and minds. We need to change the confession of our mouth. Have you ever said things and then had to run after them? Have you ever said things and then realized on your drive home, I should not have said that because that planted a seed in that person's heart, and now, oh, who knows what's going to grow there. Have you ever said things? My grandfather used to say that, that, that uh, we, we follow, we're committed to what we confess. <laughs> what we say so often shapes our, uh, uh, our belief system. What we speak out of our mouths. And this is not new. This is science, y'all. You say something enough times, people begin to believe it. You say something enough times, you begin to believe it, even if you know it ain't true. Because the confession of our mouths, and science agrees with Scripture that your words, your tongue is like a rudder that directs your life. And if you want to keep ending up in the same group and the same thing and the same stuff, just keep saying the same things. See, the church should be a group of people that in the midst of chaos is confessing something different. There should be a people who are feasting on the word of God and going, oh, you know what? He is an anchor for my soul. I'm not condemning the world. I'm confessing Jesus. I'm confessing heaven. I'm saying that I have an anchor. So I don't have to be the guy who tries to fight back on every evil thing that ever comes my way. My anchor goes deeper than that. So drink it in. Pray it through. Prayer establishes the word. I would say it like this. If you have a word life and no prayer life, right, you're limited. You're not actually acting out the things that are being put in your heart. You're just kind of, you have it, you're just not doing anything with it. Prayer is the thing that begins to work out the things that God's putting in your heart. If you have a prayer life but no word life, it's shallow. You're praying stuff. How many of you know, have you ever had a time where you're trying to pray and you're like, I don't have any clue what to say right now? You know why? You know what the psalmist did? You know what the New Testament writers did? They would pray what Jesus said. Or they would pray what the Lord gave them. You're, you can take this Bible and pray it. You can pray, God, help be the anchor for my soul. God, be safe and secure for my life. God, take me beyond the wind and the waves. Take me behind the curtain into the presence of God. How many of you know I just prayed Hebrews 6.19? Sounded good, didn't it? It sounded like a real prayer guy. Like that was like, whoa, that was deep. No, it wasn't. I was just praying scripture. Prayer is what allows you to meditate on it, chew on it, and digest it in a way that it gets into your spirit. Be a person. I know this sounds simple because deep does not always have to be difficult. Some of the simple things. Word and prayer. And then begin to work it out. How can it get into your life? Change the, 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 the things that come out of your mouth. Begin to be people who confess the goodness of God. And begin to be people who confess the potential of people. Because God's desire is that heaven would invade earth. Period. The second one. Rest, repent, repeat. Rest, repent, repeat. Got it? That's the second one. You guys are writing it down, right? You guys are taking notes because you know good Christians do that. Rest, repent, repeat. I mean, seriously, I forget my notes. I know you will. So please write some things down. Rest, repent, repeat. Rest. Very few of us are good at rest. 
I challenge people on this all the time because I think it is one of the most spiritual things you can do. Take one day a week and don't do any work. I know that's crazy in a world that tells you you should work every day of the week, and anytime anyone calls you and asks you to do something, you should do it. I get it. I understand. I told a group of ministry students one time, I said, what should I do uh, to, to, you know, to do ministry well? And I said, well, you should do the things that the Bible says. One of them is take a Sabbath and turn off your phone. And, and I, I just, I could see in their eyes this fear, you know, and I said, I said, don't worry. The world will not fall apart if you turn off your phone. And then I added this little thing, and even if it does, you won't know about it. Listen, there are times in your life you just don't need to know about everything else. There are days in your week that you should just be shutting it down. And here's why. Because God put it in your life to do it that way. He said, give me six days of work and give me one day of rest. Then give me six more days of work and then give me one day of rest. And then give me six days of work and then give me one day of rest. And just keep that rhythm the rest of your life. Because it will make you better at work. See, some of us think the career is evil. We think that the career we are in is all bad and it's evil and it's wrong and it's, I hate this job. And, I mean, and the reality is six months ago, we loved that job. But you know what you did? You stopped resting and all you're doing is working. And now it's become a weight and a struggle because it is weighing you down instead of bringing you life. God gave us work to bring us life, to put our hands to something our heart believed in. So we should be people who rest, who recreate we can say this a different way. Recreate. Recreation should recreate you. It should bring back some things that hadn't been brought back. It should give you enough of a break to really get refreshed and walk freely and strongly again. It should recreate who you are and recreate your soul. So no, I don't mean rest means sitting in front of a television in the next 12 hours of your day. That is not what I mean. How many of you know you watch 12 hours of TV, you actually are just as tired as you were when you started? I'm not saying you can't watch some TV. There's some good shows out there. I'm just saying don't convince yourself that working out is bad for you. Don't convince yourself that your body is not connected to your health spiritually. How many of you know when you're fatigued, problems become more difficult? How many of you know when you're fatigued and you're trying to discipline your child, you might just do it a little louder than you, were, you would have done it two days ago when you had a little more rest? How many know fatigue will cause problems with the very thing you're trying to solve? Our body is connected. Both. They go back and forth. In fact, some people would say, the, the Hebrew scholars would have looked at the, the, the soul, the thing that really connects us. Would have been, it would have talked about the, the, the stomach. The same thing that talks about uh, a heart is actually connected to our stomach, almost as though they understood that all of this worked together physically and spiritually to bring, bring an outcome. And then repent. Oh, goodness. Can you please redeem this word? Can you please realize that repentance is, it was actually given to us by God to bring health. Repentance was meant to be done daily. Daily. How many of you repented in a while? Don't raise your hand. How many, how many of you haven't repented? You're like, I don't even know what that word means. I hadn't done that in like six years. I thought I did that when I got saved. I got I repented and now I'm good. Well, that would be if you thought repentance was all about sin and bad stuff and how bad you were and how evil you were and how wrong you were and all that. No, repentance is not about beating yourself over the head about all the things you've done wrong. Repentance is about going back home, going back to the place God desired you to dwell, going back to the place where you thought in alignment with God. So anything that is not allowing you to think the way God would think about people, about situations, about circumstances, repent. Anything that's not allowing you to get into alignment with God's desire for heaven on earth, repent. 
and repent for your future, not just your past. Go, God, I'm, I'm, man, I'm, I'm done with that. I want to think the way you think. I want to believe the way you believe. I want to see the way you see. And that brings health. Repentance was never meant to be this heavy, difficult word. It was always meant to be this freeing word because I can bring everything to Jesus. And none of it will be too big for him. None of it will be too messy for him. None of it will be too sinful for him. All of it will be something that he can carry for us. And so I can go, oh, yeah, here we go. I'm going to do that again next week. I'm going to do that again tomorrow. Get to the end of your day and go, God, I didn't think that. I shouldn't have thought that way. Man, help, Lord, help me think better. And for some of us, the reason those two, first, those two points are important for us is this. Because for some of us to get out of depression and anxiety, for some of us, we need to fast and pray. We need to wake up at 4 a.m. and pray for an hour. For some of us, we need to pray more because we worry too much, so we need to pray more. Some of us will worry all day and pray for two minutes. No, no, every time you worry, pray. There's your pattern. Worry, pray. Worry, pray. You're going to worry again? Pray some more. Keep praying until you stop worrying. Amen? But some of you, that's not where you're at right now. For some of you, you need to go to bed on time and wake up a little later than you normally do. You just need to rest. You just need to recreate. So you got to decide where you're at. Some of you, need, you are in a spiritual warfare moment right now where you need to wake up every day and pull some weeds every single day and change the confession of your heart. And for some of you, you just need to quit being so tired and cranky. Some of you need to tell your kids to go back to bed. I'm resting right now, and it's good for you, I promise. Create a sense of rest in your home. Don't let your kids get trapped in the idea that they always, always, always have to be doing something. Tell your friends to slow down every once in a while. And then the third one is this, and I know i got to wrap up. The third one is this. Make this home brick by brick. It is so interesting to me that Paul's solution for so much of what we're dealing with is to serve others. I want you to hear me. Everybody listen up. Paul gave us solutions to our own narcissism, and that is to serve people. We have become a, a culture of narcissists. We are so caught up in what we're doing, and it started in a healthy way. It started in a place of introspection. I need to look at myself and see what I'm dealing with, and it has become an obsession. We are so obsessed with how we are doing. We're so obsessed with how my life's going. We're so obsessed about how I compare and measure up to everybody else. And we have become a culture of narcissists. And we don't understand how to get out of our own way. And every conversation we have somehow drifts back to what we're thinking about a situation. Every conversation drifts back to what we believe is most important. It rarely is dealing with everybody else. And Paul says, no, you got to love people. you got to serve people. Why? Because it works out all that stuff out of your life. See, sometimes we think the church is bad and sometimes it is but it's still the church the church is imperfect the church does have some messed up things in it the church screws some things up every once in a while because it is made of humans and people but I'll tell you what there are people in this room right now who have been hurt by the church and yet are sitting in church healed by the church blows my mind because we replace community with therapy. And again, I don't think therapy is wrong. I just think it's, it's meant to supplement true, genuine, life-giving community. Friends who will call you on your stuff. Listen, if you don't have friends who tell you every once in a while what you're saying is wrong and you shouldn't say it anymore, you don't have good enough friends. You need to develop friendships where you can speak life and hope and chat. Now, if you got friends who all they ever do is tell you what's wrong with your life, they ain't good friends either. 
You need to get some people who can look at you honestly and know that both of you are imperfect. And that's why repentance matters. Because if you don't repent ever, then you won't understand the need to forgive. You won't realize that people in your life need your forgiveness. They know they messed up. They don't understand why they're in that place. But they need someone to give them grace. They need someone to show them love. They need someone to come alongside them and say, I forgive you. I love you. And I know you didn't mean to do that. I understand. But the people who forgive well are usually people who repent often. The people who go, God, you know what? I didn't mean to do that. And then all of a sudden we have this empathy and this different look at people. Man, community is messy. It's difficult. And it's so easy to get sermons online and worship online and not have to deal with community. That's not the way God intended it. Today is Pentecost Sunday. In Romans 15, I'm going to close with this. Romans 15, one of the verses that's kind of been a, a, a hallmark for us as a church. And I gave you those three things. I really hope you get those. But all of those things were meant to point you to Jesus so that you keep your eyes on Jesus. Romans 15 says this in verse 12 and 13. It says, and again, Isaiah says, and I'm reading 12 because I want to give you a reference point to what verses 1 through 12 were about. In Romans 15, 15, he's verses 1 through 12, he's talking all about Jesus, all about Jesus, all about Jesus, all about Jesus, all about people believing Jesus, all about people trusting Jesus, all about Jesus coming and showing up, all about Jesus. And verse 12 is kind of a microcosm of that. It says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, the ones who are far off in Ephesians 2, the Gentiles. The Gentiles will hope in Jesus. The Gentiles will hope in him. And then all of a sudden it flips. In verse 13 it says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may overflow with hope by the what? Power of the Holy Spirit. So interesting to me that he spends 12 verses elevating Jesus. And then he spends verse 13 reminding us that we'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit. See, this is how it always, 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 can I say it again? Always works. When you begin to elevate Jesus in his words and his heart for you, when you begin to elevate Jesus, that is when you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit in your calling. That is when you will be anointed to do the things God has called you to do. That is when Monday will be attached to Sunday. That is when life will begin to bring into integrated things. It will all of a sudden come together. Why? Because when you elevate Jesus, the Holy Spirit goes, I can work with that. See, in our confession, if we're not elevating Jesus, in our prayer, if we're not elevating Jesus, in the way we do community, we're not elevating Jesus, in the way we rest, we're not elevating Jesus, in the way we work, we're not elevating Jesus, guess what? The Holy Spirit is trying really hard to work, but you're not giving him anything to work with. It's amazing to me when someone's frustrated and I begin to elevate Jesus, or when I'm frustrated and they begin to elevate Jesus, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit goes, oh, yeah, here we go. I'm going to work with that. I'm going to begin to shape and mold and change. The power of the Holy Spirit comes when Jesus is lifted up. That's the whole goal of the Holy Spirit, that you would become more and more like the image of Jesus. That's the whole goal. And on Pentecost Sunday, I don't know if you know this, but officially Easter ends today. Have you enjoyed Easter? It's been 40 days of Easter. Jesus rose, and today is the day the Holy Spirit entered the earth, the, the day the Holy Spirit entered the earth in a new way, in a fresh way, uh, over the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And it says, that it, can, it, it says in Acts 2, it says, suddenly the Holy Spirit fell. Storm came, all this kind of stuff, and they began to minister, and thousands got saved. I don't know if you know this, but in Acts 1.14, it actually says that they were continually in prayer. See, so many of the things that you think have suddenly happened in your life probably came because you continually did something. Are you hearing me? Some of the things that you think suddenly happened have happened because you have continually done something. Sin, struggle, pattern, thought, action, continually believed something, said something, 
complained about something, thought something, and all of a sudden, something shows up in your life. The Holy Spirit wants to suddenly change your world now if you begin to put new patterns in place. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? I want to pray. Lord, I thank you so much. The Holy Spirit, you want to empower this group of people here right now in this place.